have a seat. Thank you, Christopher. Uh, so I guess it was back in September, we started a, uh, a, a series, if you will, called The Gospel Project. Uh, this is a, a, a material that's kind of taken us through the whole of the text, and it's primarily focused in our community groups. So in our groups that happen on Sunday mornings throughout the week, uh, they're going through this content that is a gospel project. But as we launched that in our groups, we also synced up our Sunday mornings with it. So what we talked about Sunday morning just kind of started the conversation. It would be continued in our community groups. And so when we hit the Christmas season, the material in our community groups has us focused in on the story of an Old Testament man named Joseph, uh, which would be fine, except that it was the Christmas season, and there's Mary and Joseph, so it can be a little bit confusing, which Joseph are we talking about? And so if you haven't been with us the past few weeks, uh, I'm about to talk about the Joseph of the Old Testament, and then, uh, then we're going to make a bridge to the Christmas story a little bit later on, so we're going to see it all come together. But I just didn't want anybody being confused when I said uh, that God makes a promise to Joseph when he's 17 years old. He makes a promise to him when he's 17 years old, and then he takes 22 years to bring it to completion. 22 years. Okay, that's elementary school, junior high, high school. That's a college degree. Just shy of a quarter century, Joseph waiting for the Lord to act, waiting for the Lord, for the Lord to do what it is that he said he was going to do. God had given Joseph a dream that showed him in a position of leadership, in a position of power so significant that even his own brothers would bow down and worship to him. And that was the promise that God made to Joseph. And Joseph wasn't exactly shy about sharing that promise with other people, even with his brothers. Uh, he, he told his brothers this dream, this promise that God had made to him, and, and that just, as you'd imagine, ignited some sibling rivalry all the more. Uh, his brothers were already jealous of Joseph for being his father's favorite, and this dream just pushes them over the edge. And they betray Joseph. They sell him into slavery, where he's taken into Egypt, where he's bought, where he's put to work. He's falsely accused of rape, unjustly imprisoned, and then ultimately, forgotten. How impatient do you think Joseph was during those years? Remembering this promise that God had made to him. Like, how impatient do you think? Like, any day now, God, right? Like, any time you want to bring, you know, the palace or that position of power. Like, any time you want to fulfill that promise, I'm down, right? Like, I just, I mean, think about when, when those prison doors shut and he's an innocent man in prison. What conversation do you think he had with God on that first night? Like, <laughs> What conversation do you think he had with God on the 700th night? Like, God, are you, are you still there? Are you still working? How hard do you think it was for Joseph to wait on the Lord and to trust in the promises of God? Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. That's a hard phrase for me to hear wait for the Lord. Is it, is it for you? Has, has anyone ever told you sometime, like, maybe you're in a struggle or maybe something's going on and someone's like, man, you just need to wait on the Lord. Like, like I'm a pastor. I've probably said that to somebody before. I'm kind of saying it to y'all this morning. But so often, like, when I hear that phrase, there's just something in me that's like, I don't want to hear it. Like, I just, I don't want to hear that because, like, I've got an issue and I want God to work now. Like, I need him to work now. I, I like, I, I want him to work. I don't need to be told to wait. Like, I need this to happen now. And so I, I just... It's a phrase that I just struggle with because I struggle to do it. I struggle so much to wait for the Lord and to trust in his promises because oftentimes, like, when I'm in that moment, I need God to work now or I need God to move now, and yet it seems like he's not. It seems like he's being quiet or it seems like he's being silent. So often, it's hard for me to still consider the fact that he's still working. 
he's still moving. He's still accomplishing his plan, whether or not I can see it, whether or not I can feel it, whether or not I can understand it. And so it's so hard for me to wait on the Lord in those moments because what's really happening is I've lost sight of how when we wait on the Lord, or rather when we trust in the promises of God, it always leads to joy. When we trust in the promises of God, it always leads to joy. And when I'm having to wait on the Lord, so many times I I forget that truth, that trusting in the promises of God always leads to joy. For Joseph, it took 22 years for that joy to come to fruition, for that joy to be realized. 22 years for God to accomplish his purpose for Joseph and, and for his plan to come to fruition. Now, if you've missed this the the past few weeks, let me get you kind of caught up on the story of Joseph and where we're coming in on the text. Um, Again, Joseph sold into slavery, taken into Egypt. Um, He was unjustly uh, accused of something he didn't do, thrown into prison. But while in prison, he gets this reputation of being a man who could interpret dreams. He did this because he interpreted it for two prisoners, and and it kind of showed their future, or their their future became a reality from that dream. And so um, he gets this reputation of one, really, that God gives the interpretation of these dreams. And sure enough, Pharaoh has these two weird, crazy, psychedelic dreams uh, that are are struggling to understand, that that, that he doesn't that he doesn't understand, that he knows carries some sort of significance for uh, the future uh, Egyptian empire. And so he's struggling with the interpretation of him. So he sends word for, uh, for Joseph to come out of prison and to come giving the interpretation. And he does. And, he, and Joseph comes before the Pharaoh and he says that, he, uh, that the dreams are speaking to um, seven years of abundance, Seven years of good and plenty in the land, and then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine, seven years of struggle. And then once he tells the Pharaoh that that's what his dream means, he also tells the Pharaoh, hey, this is what we should do. This this is the plan of action that we need to take to to be able to survive, to be able to weather the storm, to be able to to weather this hard situation. And so sure enough, uh, the Lord, uh, or sure enough, the Pharaoh recognizes the wisdom that the Lord has given to Joseph, and the Pharaoh... uh, Uh, chooses to place Joseph in charge of the entire Egyptian empire. And so at the age of 30, uh, he's had all this struggle of sold into slavery, in the prison. At the age of 30, now 13 years after his dream, the, the vision of leadership starts to be fulfilled because now he's in charge of Egypt, or second in command. And so it starts to be fulfilled. And I say it starts because God's still not done. God's not done with it. He's still not finished. He's still working in the heart of Joseph. He's working in the heart of the Pharaoh. And he's working in the heart of even Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery. Even though he's in this position of power, even though he's in this position of leadership, the family is still separated. The, the fam- they're not together. And his brothers have not recognized him in this leadership position. And, and so there's still work to be done. And we see the next step in this process come uh, develop or happen in Genesis 42. In Genesis 42, Jacob, Joseph's father, sends his other sons to Egypt to get food and supplies for their family because they are now suffering from this famine as well. And when he gives this command, he unknowingly sets the stage for the family reunion and the fulfillment of God's promise. The only issue is is that when the brothers go into Egypt, they are not expecting to see Joseph. They sold him into slavery, you know, two decades before this. He's out of sight, out of mind. They even think he's dead. And so when they go into Egypt, they just think they're going to approach this agenda. 
Egyptian official and ask him for help. And they do. They go into this room where Joseph is. They ask the Egyptian official for help and they bow down in recognition of his authority. And when the brothers bow down, Joseph recognizes his brothers. And when they bow down, he recognizes that this is God fulfilling the dream. This is two years into the famine, 22 years after his initial dream at 17. Joseph is 39 years old when the promise comes to fruition. The wait is over. No more need for patience. God with his appropriate timing, God with his sovereign plan, orchestrates this moment that satisfies the dream and fulfills the promise that God gave to Joseph all those years ago. But it's a strange story, and I would encourage you to read it. Really read Genesis 42, 43, 44, and 45, because it covers four or five chapters. I just tried to figure out like how much of this, because it was either going to be like an eight-hour sermon, or I'm going to give you the recap. And so giving you the recap here. But it's, it's odd, because when Joseph recognizes his brothers, like I would think he would be like, brothers, brothers got a hug, right? Like I would think they would like have the moment there, right? Like have the reunion, have the celebration, but it's, it's not what happens. He keeps his identity a secret. He keeps it hidden. And in 43 and 44, you start to see, wow, though even that's a little bit odd. He starts this strange process that's going to help him uh, discover, more, help him learn more news about his family, but it's also, it's going to help him discover the, the state of the heart of his brothers, because the last time he was around his brothers, they were full of bitterness and jealousy and, uh, and just pettiness. And, and, I mean, they were jealous of, of Joseph and had him sold into slavery. So now 20 years later, he's wondering, hey, are they still the same or have they learned? Have they changed? And he does this kind of series of tests, if you will. And at the end of it, he sees their hearts have changed dramatically. Um, they're, they're, they're not consumed with this jealousy and bitterness and selfishness. But there's love and there's loyalty and there's devotion among the brothers to one another and from the brothers to the whole family. And when Joseph sees how much they've changed, when Joseph sees how much God has work in and through their life, Joseph is heartbroken himself. Like Joseph sees this, he's overcome with his joy, overcome with emotion, and, and this is where we come in. This is the reunion that I, I do want us to read. Genesis 45, verse 1 through 8. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. He reveals his identity. Like, I'm Joseph. Surprise! <laughs> like, you thought I was dead. Two de- you know, you thought I was dead. You weren't expecting, but I'm Joseph. I'm not this Egyptian official. I'm your brother. I'm, I'm, I'm the one you sold into slavery. I'm the one who had the dream that you rejected. I'm your brother. And with that news, understandably, they're speechless because at this point they're like, well, are you my angry brother? <laughs> like, are you still bitter about this? Like, or, like, what's your, I mean, it would only be natural for him to still be angry, right? And I mean, at the, just a word, he could put them all to death. And, and so they're, they're speechless and they're terrified. How is Joseph going to respond? And we see his response in verse four. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. 
So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Let's come close. I'm Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. But it wasn't you that put me here. It was God who sent me into Egypt. God sent me ahead of you to save lives. God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant, a group of people that would continue their family line. Remember, we said this last week. When Joseph saves his family here, he's basically saving the entire future nation of Israel with this moment, with this action. And so, but he's recognizing it. Hey, God sent me here to save lives, to save your life during this famine. And so Joseph, it's only here now, looking back, that he can make sense of the previous 22 years. It's only here now where he can look back and say, oh, wait, 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 God was... He wasn't silent. He wasn't quiet. He was still active. He was still working. He was still moving. It's only when he was looking back that he was able to see that God was accomplishing his plan the entire time. Now in the moment, could he have seen that? Right? When he's being fished out of the well and sold into slavery, like could he be like, oh yeah, it's fine. It's gonna save lives one day. Like, you know, I don't think that was his reaction. You know, when he's unjustly accused of rape, it's not like it's like it's all good. Like helping me save them. Like, I don't think that was his response. You know, he's in prison for all those years. Would he think, hey, this is eventually going to position me to serve the Pharaoh and save lives? Like, I mean, how could he? But what we've seen the past few weeks is that all the, all the while he's suffering through that, all the while he's experiencing that, he's mindful of God's presence in his life. And so with that, we see Joseph refuses to become bitter, refuses to become pessimistic, refuses to become... Um, jaded against the Lord. Now, I don't want to make him out to be perfect because he's not. There's, there's times where he's broken, times where he's sinful, and I, no doubt he would probably have those moments where it's probably, why me? Where are you, God? Why? Like, he would have to have those as well. But over the whole of his life, we see that Joseph's response to the Lord in this has been one of patience, has been one of waiting for the Lord, one of trusting in God's presence and trusting in God's promises. And we see that after 22 years, it leads to joy. Joy of a family reunion, joy of rescue, and, and joy of really salvation for the nation of Israel. And that they are not destroyed in a famine, but they are, have found hope. They found uh, life once again in and with the family. He, and, and in this moment, Joseph, seeing the Lord's deliverance, seeing God's faithfulness to his promises, a promise that he made 22 years before trusting in the promises of God led him to the joy of this moment and the joy of this action. A promise that took two decades to come to fruition. As we said earlier with the Christmas story, the Christmas story is essentially a story that, that is, is a story of a promise that has taken centuries to come to fruition. Really, you could even say it was a promise that was an eternity in the making. Uh, Christopher referenced earlier the 400 years of silence that happened between the last prophet to Israel and the birth of Christ. For 400 years, the nation of Israel looking, longing, hoping for the Messiah to come, hoping for the Messiah to be born, wondering, trust, uh, hoping upon hope that they could still trust in the promises of God. And so what you have in, in so many of the Christmas stories is God showing that he is faithful to his word. One of them that, that to me puts an exclamation point on that is the story of, of the wise men going to worship uh, and going to see the baby Jesus. And I want us to see this Christmas story. Go to Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12 is, is the story of the wise men going to visit Jesus. 
And um, this is a story that, that we're familiar with because we're at least, you know, you've seen the nativity, right? And, and you know, we, we've seen all the kind of the cultural depictions of this. But there are some things in this story that um, we need to ask why and how this happened because then it helps us understand a little bit more of what's happening in the text. Matthew 2, 1 through 2, we'll just grab two verses here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. So again, we're familiar with this because we know the story of, of the wise men or the Magi. And, and, and so like there's nothing in us that thinks this is odd, but it should. Because it says they're from the east. So if the Magi or the wise men are from the east, that lets us know they're not Jewish. They're not of the nation of Israel. So why on earth are they even there? Why are they involved in this story? Why are they looking for the king of the Jews? Why are they looking for the Christ? How do they know about this star, what it represents? How on earth do they just show up randomly looking, asking about the Christ? Well, the Old Testament book of Daniel uh, tells the story of a time in Israel's history where the Israelites were conquered, captured, and sent into exile. And while in exile, Daniel tells the story of Daniel and his friends that still hold on to their faith even in the midst of that suffering. Still hold on to their faith even in the midst of that struggle. And they do so in such a way to where the kings of these two foreign pagan kingdoms that have conquered the Israelites, they come to recognize that the God of the Israelites is the one true God in and through the faith of Daniel and his friends. And so they actually issue pronouncements that the God of the Israelites to be, uh, is to be respected and is to be feared. So much so that for centuries, the writings of the Israelite prophets were passed down uh, were, were passed down among the wise men of these kingdoms, among the advisors of these kingdoms, to where centuries later, these magi were knowledgeable enough to know that when a star rose in the east, it was a fulfillment of one of God's promises. Numbers 24, 17 is, is one of the prophecies that speaks to this. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So what happens, this supernatural occurrence happens, this star, uh, star appears, and the Magi, of all people, outside of the nation of Israel, the Magi of all people recognize, wait, 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 this is a promise of God that's being fulfilled, and they act on it. And they show up. They show up and they, they see what God is doing. Now, not everybody has that response. Not everybody has that reaction. In fact, um, we see a different reaction from, two different, uh, from one person and another people group in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So you see, Herod's troubled by this news and all the people of Jerusalem. Now, the people in Jerusalem, they're troubled by this because it's like all these foreign dignities are showing up, dignitaries are showing up. And they're like, you know, they're saying a new king's been born and we don't know anything about it. So they're just disturbed that this has happened um, and, and just wondering what, what all the fuss is about. Herod's disturbed because he likes being king. Herod was, was one who um, was a violent um, brutal, paranoid king that did everything he could to hold on to his power, including killing multiple wives, multiple in-laws, including actually killing even some of his own sons. Anyone who he perceived as a threat against his crown, a threat against his way of life, he, put it, he, he, he took him out. He took him out, out of the equation. And so when Herod hears this about the promise about this, this, um, 
the new king of the Jews being born, he instantly wants to find the baby and eliminate the threat because he hears this promise of God that's coming to fruition and his life is threatened by it. And so he rejects it flat out. He rejects the promise of God. And so it leads him further into insecurity, into fear, into anger, into violence. Because I think the alternative, if he hears this word and thinks, okay, well, this is a divine thing. This is something that's beyond me. He could have repented and, and realized, hey, I'm not a king all to myself. I'm subject to the true king of kings. That could have been his response, but no. He rejects the promise of God, and it leads him further into bitterness, further into anger, and really further into violence. His response to the promises of God being fulfilled is to reject them. There was another group that we read about, though, and that was the chief priests and the teachers of the law. This is a group of people that, that should have known, or that did know the promise of God better than anybody else. And yet it seems like they're asleep at the wheel when this is happening. Like they're just ignoring that the promises of God are being fulfilled. They're not even engaged in what is happening until Herod calls them all together and is like, hey guys, what's going on? And they're like, oh yeah, there's another promise that he's, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem is five miles away from Jerusalem. It's essentially a suburb. And, and like, this star is happening, and these guys are acting like, like nothing has happened. Like nothing has occurred. Uh, uh, they're this close to it. They have this much proximity, and none of that helps them. They ignore the promises of God, and you can almost feel the apathy set in for them. It's almost as if their knowledge and their proximity leads to their complacency and their indifference. Their apathy keeps them from trusting in the promises of God, which would have helped them be led to the joy that God desired to give to them. Their apathy and indifference leads them to just ignore the promises of God, and they miss out on one of the most pivotal moments in the course of human history. They just ignored the promises of God, even as they were being fulfilled right in front of them. Whereas the Magi, hundreds of miles away, and they act. Hundreds of miles away, and they trust. They trust in the promises of God, and, and look at what happens for them. Verse, we're skipped down to verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They see Jesus. They meet Jesus. They worship the king of the Jews. They worship the Christ. It's a promise of God that they trusted in, that they acted on. They take step after step after step, and they see Jesus. They see the promise of God being fulfilled, and they are overjoyed. They trust in the promises of God, and they rejoice in the promise of God being fulfilled. Now, keep in mind their whole story, right? They, like, they, they faced hardship along the way. I do believe that. They encountered a bloodthirsty king apathetic priest and a suspicious town. Joseph endured slavery, unjustly imprisoned, and was away from his family for decades. So hear me when I say this. It's not when you trust in the promises of God does that automatically mean that your life is free of hardship and difficulty. No. It's just that when we continue to trust in the promises of God, when we go through those days, weeks, months, years, maybe even decades of where it seems like God's not working, God's not moving the way that we think he's, going, he's supposed to move. Even when we're journeying through the, the, the doldrums, so to speak, we can come back and know that I'm trusting in the promises of God because I know it will always, always, always end in what is life-giving, what is true, what is, uh, what is joyful 
for the soul. And that's what helps us be strong, take heart, and wait on the Lord. Because we know throughout the entirety of his text, God has shown us time and time again that trusting in his promises always leads to our joy. And his word is full of promises, full of promises. Romans 10, 9, and 10 gives us a promise of our salvation. If, we, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise that is for you. You can act on and trust in and know that that hope can be, can be present in your life. He gives us a promise of forgiveness as well. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all, right, all unrighteousness. It's a promise that God has given to you that can end in joy when you trust in it. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. He's promised to give us rest. Matthew... That Jeremiah 29, 11 verse, let me go back to that. That's Jeremiah the prophet spoken to the nation of Israel where there was hardship was in their future. But he's, he's reminding them, there's a bigger story at play. It's plans for hope, plans for future. Like there, there might be a, a time of, of difficulty. There might be a time of hardship, but bank on it. This is ultimately for God's glory and for our good. It's a promise that we can trust in. He's promised to give us rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. These are all promises of the Lord, but we have to trust in them and we have to act on them. And too often we have the response of Herod. We have the response of Herod because we can hear these promises of God and we can be fearful that, okay, if, if I trust in them, then that's going to lead me to, to have to change my life. And I don't know if I want to. I've got this life built for myself that I think I like, that I think I enjoy, that I think is for my good. But if, if, I, if I say yes to God, if I trust in his promises, then I see that that's going to conflict with this and that's going to make me have to change this. And so what happens is we just reject the promises of God. We essentially choose the life we have chosen for ourselves, we have created for ourselves, and yet we experience the futility of that choice because we find ourselves always looking and longing for meaning, for hope, for joy, for purpose. Or maybe it's not even that. We just feel our soul begin to feel toxic and bitter and pessimistic because we're, we're rejecting the promises of God. And so maybe, maybe what God's wanting for you to happen or wanting to happen in your life this Christmas season is for you to move from rejecting the promises of God to trusting in them and even allowing that trust to bring about change in your life, confession of sin, repentance of sin, to bring your life in line with who he is and, and, and those virtues and ethics of his family. If we don't reject the promises of God, sometimes we just flat out ignore them. Maybe, uh, you know, like the verses that I read earlier, like Romans 10, 9, Jeremiah 29, 11, like those are, and 1 John 1, 9, those are some highlight real verses, right? Like if you've grown up in church for a while, you've heard those verses before. And, and so, so many times we can let our proximity to them, our familiarity with them, lead us to stop short of grasping their eternal significance. And so maybe you've grown up in church and you can name the promises of God, but you've had the response of the chief priests, the teachers of the law, to where you stop short of the action they call you to take. And so you've seen the hope of Christ, you, maybe you've been so near the fullness of Christ, but you've ignored it for so long because you've just kept it at arm's distance or just ignored that this is really a promise that God wants you to have in your life, that he wants you to act on personally, not your family, not people around you. God wants you to be the one to respond, to trust, 
and to embrace these promises that he has for you. So maybe this Christmas season, God wants you to move from a place of indifference to a place of trust to a place of action. And in so doing, discover the joy of trusting in the promises of God. So hear, hear me on, on this church, all right? This, at the Christmas, I say this every year at Grace City. I'm going to say it again this year. With Christmas, it happens once every year for us, right? Every December, we know it comes around. And we're going to hear all the stories of, of, of the nativity, of the shepherds, of the angels, of the wise men. And so there's a temptation that happens, though, that, that it's, it's, this story becomes like a well-worn path in our heart and in our soul. So much so to where we lose sight of that this is the story of God of the universe fulfilling his promise to send his baby. God fulfilling his promise to love, to rescue, to redeem, to give us life. And so my hope and my prayer for you and for me this Christmas season is that we would be once again reminded of how he's faithful to the promises that he's made and he will be faithful to all the promises that he makes. And so that that would lead us to not reject his promises but to trust in him, to not ignore his promises but to act on them. And in so doing, we would experience and know the joy that he desires to give to his people. And that as I think what gives the fuel that we need to hear these words of, of waiting on the Lord and know that they're not empty, they're not meaningless. No, 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 no. I'm going to take heart, be strong, and wait on the Lord because I know, I know that trusting in the promises of God always, always leads to joy. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for your hope. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the stories that you've given us in your word, whether it's Joseph in the Old Testament or Mary and Joseph in the New Testament. God, we see um, how you work and how you move, how you stay, uh, you stay on the move. You stay accomplishing your plan, whether we can see it, whether we feel it, whether we experience it, Lord God. And so help us learn from their stories to look to our own, uh, to see those seasons of our life, or maybe it's a season that we're anticipating, Lord God, that, that help us be mindful um, that you are still present, that you are still working, and we can trust in you. We can trust in your promises and know that even if it's a, a time of grief, even if it's a time of mourning that we walk through, that God, we know that will ultimately and always end in joy. It ends in glory and worship for you, and God, it ends to our good as it leads us to repent of sin, to confess our sin, to bring our lives further in align with you and with the, the hope and the joy and the wisdom that you have for us. So God, we thank you for your word and the truth it calls us to. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.